Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. Turn, if you will. Uh, we're looking at uh, a series that we've been in, in uh, with God's good news, God's grace for failures, God's grace for unlikely heroes. And we're going to look at uh, a section out of Judges today. Uh, you can be turning to Judges chapter 4, or the passage is in uh, the bulletin. If you want to follow along in the bulletin, uh, the section that's written there, we're going to read the whole chapter as we see God's grace in action depicted here in the book of Judges. So follow along, and I will uh, read it out loud. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned at Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoim, because he had, one, he had 900 iron chariots, and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. They cried out to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lipideth, was, was leading Israel at the, at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abin, Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but uh, if you don't go, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you, but because, on the, but, be, but because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Haber, the Canaanite, had left the other Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'anim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariots and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoim. All the troops, all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not, not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot, to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber, the Kenite, the Kenite, because they were friendly, because they were uh, they had friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of Haber, the Kenite. 
Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand at the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is he there? Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple and into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you were looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and for the way that you care for us. I pray that you would work in our lives. I pray that you would give us your hope. I pray that you would help us to see you uh, in our circumstances and not see ourselves and not see circumstances over you. Father, I pray that you would guide us and uh, inspire us and captivate us by your word, by your truth, by your grace. Change us, Father, and let us be be ambassadors of change and transformation to this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was in, uh, I was in high school when, uh, in 1980, the, uh, the, summer, uh, the Winter Olympics of 1980 uh, was, and it's, those of you who've been around long enough, old schoolers as you may be, remember the Winter Olympics of 1980. Um, it was the year of, of what's, uh, what's called the, the Miracle Hockey Game. Um, the American hockey team uh, was a bunch of uh, 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 high of co- I was going to say high school of, of college players brought from all over the country, uh, most of whom had not played together under one coach, and they were going up against uh, the premier of international hockey at this level in the in the Olympics against uh, the Soviet Union at the time, who were, who were champions over years. And, and the players were, as it were, uh, gathered and had played together for years and years and years and were the, and were the, uh, the class of this league and unbeatable, un, unmatchable in this capacity and, and a little bit older, a good bit older than the, uh, than the American team of college students. And... Uh, uh, as, uh, as, the, as the movie goes, as the history goes, um, uh, I can still remember in my, in my head, I'm wa- I was watching the game. I was watching uh, uh, that weekend uh, at my grandmother's house. We were watching the Olympics and we were so very caught up in it. And I remember in particular um, watching, the ga- watching that, that, uh, that match. And it wasn't the ultimate match. It was the penultimate match because they, the, they were in the medal rounds. But it wasn't the gold medal match. It was actually, I think, the, the bronze medal match. I don't know, I don't, or the silver medal. I don't know how they ma- managed it up. But it was, all, it was their second, it was the semifinals, basically. And so America's going up against. And I can still remember, as the clock's ticking off, America's leading, and they're still trying to, the Soviet Union is still trying to win. And I can hear Al Michaels in the back, in, you know, over all of this. Do you believe in miracles? And then, of course, they win and everything, you know, and then they ended up winning the gold medal match not, and not a couple of days later um, against, I think, Finland, 
I, I forget what the, you know, anybody, oh, everybody remembers the semifinals but doesn't remember the other. What, what strikes me about that are these moments, are these moments in history when the unlikely happens. Um, I'm, a, I'm a Baltimore boy. I born and raised in Baltimore, Baltimore sports fan, and a lot of those sports imageries come to mind. I remember, I, I don't remember specifically this. I'm sure I watched these games. I don't remember them as vividly as my father remembers them or my grandfather in particular remembers them. The, the year was 1969. Not a great year for Baltimore. Oh my gosh. The Orioles were the creme de la creme of the league. Again, unbeatable, unmatchable, and then uh, beat by what's known to this very day, the Miracle Mets. And then that same year, not too many months later, the Colts. No, unmatchable, un, unbeatable, unstoppable in their, in their force, and then they go up against Joe Namath and the, and the New York Jets. Unbelievable not a great situation. But the unlikely occurs in those moments. And, we, and, and they're unlikely because the, the, they feel, it feels as though what we think is going to happen or what we hope it can happen is so unlikely. What it leads me to, we, we live in a day and age where, where when, when, we're, when we come up against unbeatable odds, our natural senses, our natural abilities tend to tell us It'll never happen. And yet we have sprinkled throughout our lives, and these are just sports references, sprinkled throughout our lives moments where the unlikely did happen. The pages of Scripture are, if you look at, if you, if you look at them properly through, through the lens that God intends, God has assembled, God has assembled story upon story life upon life, experience upon experience, and put them in one compendium bound in leather, his whole story, drawing together all of these unlikely moments to tell us, to remind us over and over and over, I am the God who does unlikely things for you. And you think... After all the years, after all the stories, and the Bible is fraught with them. The Bible, that is, it's a huge theme that you can see throughout the Scriptures is that, is that insurmountable odds are up against God's people, are up against God, are up against the work of His plan in the world, and yet God overwhelms it and, and answers the strain, answers, comes to rescue in the most unlikely circumstances. And you think with all these stories, of unlikely experiences, that it would teach God's people, it would teach us, that in the face of daunting moments, in the face of, of darkest fear, that we would remember, that we would be comforted by the idea that God can and is going to do the very unlikely thing that we don't think he will do. The quote that I gave you from, uh, from uh, um, Tom Wright, speaks a little, a little more profoundly to this idea. Christianity isn't about cozy little lessons to make us feel better. It's about what God's doing in the world, what he's already done in Christ and what he wants to do through us today. Are we ready for the unexpected? Are we 
too in danger of deciding so firmly that God ought to be doing in our lives, our churches, our world, that, he become, that we become blind and deaf to him when he tries to tell us that it's actually going to be rather different. Meaning, the re- often the reason we think that God is, un- is unlikely to work is because we, we have our eyes too much set on our plan and not on his. In this particular story, in this particular experience with, with Deborah, um, it's in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges presents us the, 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 the benefit of see, in the book of Judges is a series of stories over all of its chapters which goes through the same cycle, the same cycle of life that we have been in, that humanity has been in from the very beginning when Adam and Eve failed at God's original command for love. When he, had when he originally commanded them, love me by not eating the things I tell you are dangerous. Love me by trusting me. Love me by letting me provide for you and not you for yourselves. And they failed at that. And then from that point on, the humanity has been in a cycle, has been in a, has been in a regular season of life. And this season is depicted in the very first paragraph. And, the, and you can look at it this way is that the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So cycle number one, the first cycle is they're sinners, and as a result of their sin, the Lord brings circumstances into their lives that bring them to a place of hardship, that bring them to a place of need, that bring them to a place where they are, where they are in danger and beyond their abilities. The consequences of their sin have led them into a place of hardship. It says that, they were, that God sold them into the hands of Jabin the king. Cycle number one, they sin in the eyes of the Lord. They, 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 they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Cycle number two, they're carried off into captivity. Cycle number three, says there, because he had 900, uh, that is Sisera, had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed them for, for the Israelites for 20 years. Oppression. So they're feeling under captivity, but now they're being oppressed by these circumstances, by this captivity, by the consequences of their sin, are utterly oppressing them. And now, that's cycle three. Cycle four, what do they do? It says in the last part of that verse, they cried out to the Lord. Cried out. This is the cycle. We sin. We live the, capt- we, we live the consequences of those sins. We live the oppression of those sins. And then we finally cry out to God. And then what is God's answer? What is God's response to the crying out? The very next verse, Deborah, a prophetess. He sends a rescuer. He sends hope. He sends sends an unlikely solution to the problem that we ourselves have gotten ourselves into. There's a ton of things in this passage as we look as we look at it, the, the story, as as the story goes, uh, it begins with the with one of the most unlikely elements in the in this passage, Deborah, a prophetess. There's and uh, and, and in the day and age in which this was live in the, which this occurred, you might imagine, as we've said a number of times before, that it was not friendly to the idea of women doing anything of substance. Okay. Um, some might, even, some might even say it's not so much different than today. <laughs> um, we are a, a thousand times better at that than they were here. But in this day and age, in this season of life, the culture, the culture would not 
have, the culture would not have acknowledged the value, would not have acknowledged the ability, would, have not, would not have acknowledged the right of a woman to sit in a place of authority, to sit in a place of decision-making, to sit in a place of justice. And Deborah here, we discover in this passage, she is, she is a variety of things that the culture would, not, would clearly have not respected. Because women in this culture, in this timeline, would have been marginalized to the outskirts of usability. You know, in, in, uh, in, in a modern cliche, is the woman's place is in the home. Cook the meals, raise the kids. Basically, that was the cultural sense in its day and age. And so for Deborah, who in this instance, what we see in this passage, she was a prophetess, meaning... She is getting messages from God to give authoritative speech about who God is and what God can and will do in the lives of his people. She was a judge. She was offering, offering wisdom and bringing justice to disputes within her cultural. And people were seeking her out for that wisdom. And, and what she determined to be true was set right in the culture itself. She was a warrior. She went to war with and commanded the forces of Israel against the forces of Jabin. She's a songwriter. We didn't read any of it. The next chapter, chapter 5, is Deborah and Barak's song about what happened. It's, uh, it's curious, and I mentioned this on my, on my weekly email update, is that the amount of... The amount of music that we have in Scripture. Uh, at the very center of the Scriptures, we have the books given to music, three whole books given to, given to uh, songs, songs about life and emotions, songs about love and what I adore, and songs about when I hurt. At the very center of the Scriptures, we have those, those books. But then throughout the Scriptures, in the narratives themselves, uh, suddenly a, a song will burst out. And here's a song in the chapter 5. We're not going to look at it in, in particular, but I give it to you uh, for, your, for your weekly devotions maybe or for a time to read and meditate upon. But what, what Deborah and Barak are singing about it gives us, and I'm going to refer to a couple of verses from that song, gives us some insight into what happened in the narrative. That the songs of Scripture, the, 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 uh, the ecstatic music that rises up out of these experiences teaches us that sometimes words aren't enough to get out the whole sense of what's going on here. To, that, that this was such an unlikely thing to happen. Barak and Deborah are singing about it. It's so, I, you know, words and just telling you the details, and they do in chapter 4. Chapter 4, Deborah tells us, or the writer of Judges tells us the details, or tells us the experience itself, but then has to sing a song about it because I can't simply put it, I can't simply let the words be, be enough to communicate how astronomically unlikely this experience was. And that likely, and that likely is maybe, is maybe and, and if we were to study all of the songs, all of the interjected uh, music in Scripture, in the narratives, I think if we were to study it, we might discover um, that when the experience is so unlikely, it always led to music. It always led to an outburst of 
words and music which, which, express, which express the feeling of the heart, which express the captivation of the mind and heart and the experience in this, to, to, to communicate something went on here that I have to exude with more than just what I'm saying and more than with what I'm just describing because of how huge this is. And in this instance, we've got a, we've got a woman in a patriarchal, misogynist culture that would have been marginalized to the side, would have been dismissed in her, in her abilities, dismissed in her wisdom, dismissed in her value to make anything happen. Deborah, and God says, do you know who I'm going to use to save you? We've been through this pattern a couple of times before, and you're going to go through this pattern a couple of times after, and you've been in this pattern throughout history. You sinned, you feel the consequence, you feel the, you feel the pain and the oppression, you cry out to me, and I'm going to save you through the most unlikely source. A person that you marginalized, a person that you had no thought of, and I'm going to invest her with my words and my wisdom. I'm going to invest her with my strength and my creativity, and I'm going to make, I'm going to use her and make her something for you and in you that you would never have dreamed could ever occur and come out of Israel, Deborah. So much so that even the commander of the army that God says to her, tell Barak to take the army down. I'm going to give, the, I'm going to give Jabin into your hands. I'm going to give Sisera into your hands. Even Barak doesn't believe this can happen. Do you see how it is in there? Barak comes down to this passage and she tells him, the Lord's going to give him into your hands. Take the men, find 10,000 men. Okay, that's a, that's a lot of men and uh, fight, fighting forces. And, I, and then he says in verse, in verse uh, 7, I'm, I will lure Sisera, the commander of the army, to the Kishon River, and I'm going to give him into your hands. And Barak says, I'm not going to go unless you go. He had no faith in this process. He didn't think it was likely that they could win. And why didn't he think it was likely? Well, if you look at the passage, you wouldn't have thought it was likely either. They've been oppressed for 20 years. And the reason they're oppressed, the reason that they're under such oppression, slaves, as it were, at the hand of the king, and at the, specifically at the hand of Sisera, he had 900 iron chariots. In other words, he was at the forefront. He was on the cutting edge, state-of-the-art military technology. Iron chariots, not wooden chariots. No, I mean, chariots, was, chariots were sort of a modern-day uh, state-of-the-art, but these were iron chariots, meaning they didn't break down as easily. They were heavier. They, had, they took more horses to pull them. They were more intimidating there was a sense where, you know, that if it's a wooden chariot, if it's some lesser, if it's some lesser material than iron at the time, then, uh, then uh, there's a sense where we might be able to destroy it. We might be able to hold up against it. But these were iron chariots. They were impenetrable to the, to the, by the sword. They were impenetrable by the arrows. They, were, they had such a thunderous approach, 900 unlikely that this is going to, and it's for 20 years, it's been this way for 20 years. There's no way. And Barak knew that. He's a military commander, and God says, I want you to go down. I'm going to give him in your hands. And it was, it was so absurd. Barak knew it was absurd. And so he, at least he was honest. He says to, he says to Deborah, I, 
I'm not, I don't want, I'll go if you go, but I'm not going to go if you don't go. I have no real sense of this going the way you described. In the face of unlikely outcomes, in the face of something that we don't believe God can actually do, when we share that message, here's one woman who believes that God can do something that's unlikely in the face of rational information. When we share that information with the people around us, even people who might be close in on the circle of it, what this passage should tell you is they're likely not to believe you. They're likely to think you're crazy. As a matter of fact, every person who believed, who was given, the, given the, the message that something unlikely is going to happen in your life and in the lives of the people around you, every time that message came to the person and they began to tell that message, God's going to do something unlikely. God's going to save us from this trouble. God's going to lift us up out of this oppression. God's going to turn our night into day. God's going to turn death into life. God's going to do this amazing thing that you never thought possible after centuries of it not occurring. Every time that person that God told that story to, I'm going to do the unlikely thing. Every time they went on to tell someone else, everyone else thought they were out of their minds. That's absurd. They laughed. Elizabeth? Well, it wasn't even Elizabeth. The angel came to Elizabeth's husband at the birth of John the Baptist and says, your wife's going to have your wife's going to have a baby in her old age and he's going to be the precursor. He's going to pave the way for Jesus. The angel after after Hundreds of years of having no message from God since the time of Malachi, the last prophet of Israel, the first word, one of the first words that comes into it from God into the message of God's people is, I'm going to do something unlikely that hasn't happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I'm going to do something so unlikely, and I want you to be, I want, I want to tell you this, I want to give you this message, You're, I'm, going to, I'm going to bring a Savior to end all need for saviors, and I'm going to do it. Uh, your, your, your wife and you and your baby are going to be a part of this plan. And when he heard the story from an angel, unlikely to begin with, he laughed. He laughed in an angel's face. Now, I don't know. I mean, I would be pretty nervous about that myself, to laugh in the, in the face of God's truth when God sends a messenger, to, to just laugh. To, to, you know, I've, let's put it this way. Maybe this will help in some capacity. When Becky has told me things about her life or in our lives that's unlikely or something that I should, that I should do or be prepared for, and I snicker at times when that's happened, or I'll go, <laughs> um, the look I get is enough to drive my heart to chill. Imagine, imagine laughing in the face of an angel. And the angel said at that point, the angel, if you recall the story in Luke, the angel says to him, you're going to go, you're going to go, uh, you're going to go silent for the entire pregnancy. You're going to go silent for the, you're not going to be able to speak for the entire pregnancy of your son's birth. Basically, tell, and he was a, and, and as we know about it, a little, he, he was a preacher. 
He was a preacher. So he was, he was on the inside. He was on the inside of the message of God's grace and on the message of, as it were, he, if anybody should have believed that God can do unlikely things, it's the guy that's telling people week after week, God can do unlikely things. And then the unlikely thing comes to him. God says, you're right. All these years you've been preaching the message that God can do unlikely things and will and intends to do unlikely gracious things for his people. It's going to happen through you. And he laughs. He snickers quickly. And the angel says, all right, silence. Preacher. You ever try to pre- silence a preacher? My wife has. It's not, a pleasant, it's not a pleasant thing. Because in the telling of these stories, in the telling, you know, preachers need to preach, singers need to sing. There's a sense where there's a life-giving nature that we can't be caught completely ourselves. But, but often, the, that's, the, that's the good thing about it, being a preacher and being a singer and being anything that you do well, anything that you've been called to do, it's a very life-giving experience for you. And I love to tell people that sort of thing. But when you silence it, it can often, it takes away a sense of, but here's the, the downside of being a preacher is that I, that I and every preacher and the angel talking to the man, that, that he knee-jerks to speaking when he should just be quiet and listen. And there's a sense where that aspect is, is true of God's people, of any people, is that when we're told something unlikely is going to happen, that God is going to intervene and give you the very thing that you, that you thought was the least, least likely, least hopeful, that you'd stopped believing could occur, that God is going to do that along with him, along with Christ. How will he not along with Christ also give you all things? That when God is going to do and give you all things in addition to Christ, that in the face of that, our first response, our knee-jerk reaction is the same as Elizabeth's husband, is the same as that, as John the Baptist's father. Our knee-jerk reaction is to start objecting, objecting, or laughing, or mocking. Our, our first response is to, is to express our disbelief that God can do unlikely things. And God is telling us through that experience and, through, and in the experience of, of Barak, because he's doing the same thing, Deborah says, shh, the the way you're going about this is all wrong. The angel says, the way you're going about this is all wrong. So just be quiet for nine months and just listen. Listen for nine whole months and watch and see what God will do. Stop objecting. Stop interfering. Stop throwing out your, don't, don't speak. Listen. My dad's fond of saying to me when I was growing up, and every once in a while still, that we should take note of the fact that God gave us one mouth and two ears. And what he meant by that was we should be listening twice as much as we're speaking. It's a little humorous way for him to to tell me, shh, always objecting. Barak jumps in and says, always objecting. He says, I don't think this is likely. I don't think this is possible. Deborah says, I've told you. How will he not also? And the way that you're going about this, you're telling me to go with you. Now, here's what's going to happen. Because you're doing about it the wrong way, here's some. I'm, you think this is unlikely. You think it's unlikely that God can save his people from an insurmountable military force with the latest technology and an an unstoppable military arsenal that's been oppressing your people for decades, 
You think that's impossible? Let me show you. And, and God was going to do it through you, and you objected. So let me tell you, it's going to get more unlikely. God was going to save Israel. God, you were going to be the one to bring about the, the, the unlikely thing in the, in the lives of the people. You were going to be the leader, the commander, but I'm going to go with you. You're still going to be a part of it. But in the end, it's all going to be done by another woman. An unlikely experience. And Barak's got to be thinking to himself, oh my goodness, I didn't think it was possible given we already have one woman in charge of something. That's not likely. And now I was going to do this against a military force. That's not likely. God can't save. And now God's telling him, watch what I can do with vessels, with people who are on the outside. Watch what I can do. What unlikely, insurmountable, gracious, wonderful miracles I can do with things that you can't, that you think are impossible. And so they gather their forces. They head up to the mountain about to go into battle. And what we don't know, it only tells us that, that um, at Barak's, this is verse 15, at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and arm, uh, armed by the sword and Sisera abandoned his chariots. In other words, you go, they're, they're assembling 10,000. Uh, Sisera has his 900 iron horses. And then it just says they were routed. And you're going, well, what, how did that happen? I mean, I, we believe it. It's the details. It's the experience. They certainly tell you the end of the story. But how did it happen? Well, that's where you got to go to the music. The music, if it were, it's, it, this, is in, this is in verse 4 of chapter 5, and I'll just read it real quickly. The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Now, in there is a lot of poetry. The mountains quaked, the mountains thundered, the skies... Uh, uh, but it also says this one element, the, the clouds poured forth rain... And they're in the Kishon Valley with the Kishon River. And that's where the battle was taking place. And so the, the Lord lured out Sisera with his 900 iron chariots. And the worst possible thing that could happen to a chariot that's made of iron, heavy as it is, is to, be, is to have to muck through a muddy battlefield with a flood from a river. God changed the weather in the dry season. And the rain poured forth and made his chariots simply obstacles in the mud. And that's how they were routed. And I love the, I love the language. I love, I love the, the, and the language of song is the only thing that gives us this. The poetry of song, you know, there's a sense where, I, you know, I, I, tell, I tell Becky, you know, and my kids, we've always had this. Uh, uh, we've always had this sort of phrase: "Is I, I love you, I love you." Um, uh, we would go back and forth. I love you from here to the moon and back. I love you uh, bigger than the sky. I love you bigger than the universe. Love you as big as the universe. And we go back and forth. It's not, you know. And I, my son actually wrote me a poem about the way that we would talk about how much we loved each other. And we would say, "I love you. I love you as big as the universe." But then the next one would say, I love you bigger than the universe. And then I would say, I love you to infinity. And he would say, I love you to infinity plus one. Does that even exist? No, it 
doesn't exist, but it's the language of love. It's the, it's the, it's the language of extreme. It's the language of the heart. It's the, it's the, it's the, even the, even the language of song and poetry is putting in to actual words impossible, unlikely experiences. If you will, it says here in verse, in verse uh, four of chapter five, in the song, the earth shook, the mountains quaked. A little bit further in, in chapter 20, for the heaven, from the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. That's not likely. Other passages of Scripture in the book of Revelation, the sun and moon will go darkened. The moon will turn to blood. The stars will fall from their skies, from the, from the skies, when the redemption, when the creation is renewed by what God is doing. What this poetry is communicating to us is putting into unlikely words astronomically something that is not likely ever going to happen physically. The stars are not going to physically fall from the sky. Do you know why? Because if just one star falls from the sky, it annihilates everything. But it's the language of, it's the language of poetic extreme. It's the language of unlikely. It's the language of saying, when God does something, when God is involved in the rescue of his people, all bets are off on what we think he can do. And the most, and the most valuable thing we can do in the face of the unlikely is to sit back and wait and watch and be silenced before the Lord and let him do what he's going to do and stop objecting. to. Tr we should be drawn with the, bait, with the stories that he's given us, with the songs that he's provided, with the extremity of language that he tells us about what he can and will and wants to do for the lives and hearts of his people. It should lead us to faith. It should lead us to trust. It should lead us... It should lead us to be the most hopeful people on the face of the earth when it comes to unlikely things. But just as Barak, and just as all the, all the people of Scripture, when they, when they are told, and even those on the inside track, even people who ought to believe but don't, it's often that God's people are the least likely to believe the very things that he's capable of doing in the face of stories that tell us he does this all the time. And so you're in good stead if you don't trust, if, you, if you're not hopeful. If you don't want to be, you know, here's the thing I think that, that uh, a lot of people struggle with. Would you rather... I think, I think some of the reason why Barak is so skeptical is because he was overly rational. He looks at the circumstances and says, this doesn't look, this, the circumstances don't look likely. They've got, they've got 900 chariots of iron. They've been oppressing us for 20 years. They're a stronger force. We are basically slaves. 
We don't have the military might. We don't have, we don't have the, the logical, rational experiences. There's a sense where the reason that you and I don't believe in the unlikely things that God can do in our lives is because we're overly rational. We're afraid. Often the reason we don't trust in those unlikely things is because we're afraid to believe something that's not reasonable. When I'm hard-pressed to find anything in Scripture that God does that's reasonable, He's always doing an unreasonably outlandish, absurd thing. And yet, our faith is more, more concerned that it be reasonable to think of something, that, we can, that it fits into the intellect of our own mind, that it fits into, our, into the expectation of our own heart, that it fits into the popularity of everyone's acceptance. And so the, there's a sense where we're, we're so afraid to put our faith in the absurd of what God tells us is actually possible to give us all things, along with Christ, give us all things, give us an abundant life, come to our rescue, turn our darkest nights into, into bright mornings, turn death into life, what, that, that, that we don't think that that's possible. And so we, it's almost as if we're afraid to go to our grave that someone would say, ah, or he can't, he, he, he died a reasonable man. Or would we rather go to our grave and the, and the legacy of our grave is he always believed crazy dreams. Always believed the best about a situation. Always believed that God could intervene. Always believed that there was a hopeful moment. Always believed that there was a star in the midnight sky. The gospel, the power of God, the redemption, the resurrection is proof that God gives his people that kind of hope in the face of the darkest moments of our lives. And there's, we're living in a dark moment now with a culture that's radically changed. None of us have ever been in this situation. I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know how this will adjust. And the numbers go up and down, and the fear goes up and down, and the finances go up and down, and the experiences and relationships go up and down. And I don't know what God, but I know that God says he will save me. I know that he says he will do outlandish things for me. I know that he says that he will keep his people solid and secure, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So I don't know what your insurmountable moment is. I don't know what your experience. I mean, certainly we all share one in our cultural moment of pandemic. But what is your moment? Joblessness? Finance? Satisfaction with a life that you don't find satisfying? A relationship that just won't mend? A forgiveness that just won't come out of your heart for another person? or in other people? A culture that is desperately in need of justice, of equity, a, a culture that is fraught with racial and ideological differences that seem insurmountable? I don't know what you're, I don't know what's, I don't know what seems unlikely to you in terms of change and what you may be facing, but God promises through these stories and many others I will change it. 
God used another woman thousands of years later after Deborah. Used another woman, an unlikely teenager. He says, I'm going to do something in your life that's going to change humanity forever and end all of the enemies of God completely, the enemy of sin, the enemy of, of, uh, of injustice against God's righteousness. I'm going to do something in the life of this, of this unwed teenager. I'm going to place myself in your womb, and I'm going to be born to you, the Savior of the world, because there is no Savior. There is no Savior that this planet has developed. Deborah was from here. Barak was from here. Ehud was from here. Gideon and Samson were all from here. And they were great champions temporarily. He says, but I have to be your champion because there is no champion on the planet that can accomplish what I need to accomplish in your life and in the lives of humanity across the, across the strata of, of, of epics of, of life. And I'm going to do it in the life of an unlikely unwed impoverished teenage girl. That's absurd. That's absurd. And God says, I, that's how my glory is made known. And if I can do something so absurd in the life of her, throughout all the stories, it's the most absurd of all of them. If I can do something that absurd in, for humanity, how will I not also do the unlikely absurd thing for you? Of what of what, of how small a thing that is. If I can do the big thing, why can't I do the small things for your finance, for your fears, for your relationships, for your hopelessness? The God of grace says, find hope in trusting in that I regularly do unlikely things. Trust me. Let's pray. Lord, bless your people. Lord, we are, we are radically cynics uh, and overwhelmingly uh, skeptical. Lord, I pray that you would show us yourself and show us what you can and will do in our lives. Make us hopeful in places of darkness. Make us, make us uh, positive in times, of, in times of fear. That you might receive glory. And that we might be dumbfounded, that we might laugh and sing when we see you do the unlikely thing in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.